This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, September 14th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, Secretary of State Jenna Griswold visits Telluride. Ride asks for fall festival dates. Telski talks housing needs and Chair 9 construction. And a mountain weather forecast. But first... Three individuals died in a vehicle accident on Monday on Imogene Pass, driving from the Yankee Boy Basin area towards Uray. According to Colorado State Patrol, the individuals were driving in a jeep when it drifted off the ridge edge of the road, which was a cliff. The jeep fell to the bottom of the cliff before rolling down a rocky embankment and coming to a rest on the bank of Canyon Creek. The driver was ejected from the vehicle and came to rest along the embankment. The two other individuals remained in the vehicle. State Patrol notes cause of the crash is still under investigation. Colorado's Secretary of State Jenna Griswold is running for re-election this November. On Tuesday, she was in Telluride to meet with voters for a campaign fundraiser. KOTO News spoke with Griswold about why she's running, the importance of election security, and Lil' Kim. The conversation starts with Griswold's background and how she got into politics. I'm definitely not the typical person to run for office and to hold office. Uh, So I grew up in Drake, Colorado, in Estes Park, in a cabin with an outhouse outside, at times on food stamps, uh, at times we were going to food banks, and I started working the summer after seventh grade. Uh, And working so young, I really saw that a lot of Colorado families were struggling. And that inspired me to be first in my family to go to a four-year college and then to law school. And really, I I bring uh, the value of everyday people, whether you're from rural Colorado or a big city, whether you're rich or, or, you know, blue collar, regardless of the color of your skin or your zip code, should have a say in how our country is going. And, And that say starts with the ballot box. Uh, So I ran for Secretary of State in 2018 uh, with a series of promises to expand access and security, and that's what I've done as Secretary of State. I've tried to always be a champion for voting access and voting rights. Uh, I'm the nation's youngest Secretary of State, the first Democrat elected in 60 years, um, and I I hope to continue to champion everyday people's right to vote in a second term. Across the country, we have all seen... Um, the importance of elections and how contentious they can be at times and the importance of safe and and fair elections. In your role, what are you really proud of or what do you think you've done well um, to make sure that Colorado is able to have fair and safe and secure elections? Well, I've increased access quite a bit. So for example, we have 65% more secure ballot drop boxes now. Uh, We partnered with the tribes and saw approximately 20% increase in tribal voting. Uh, I passed legislation to guarantee access on every public university and on tribal lands. Uh, I passed automatic voter registration, a program that registered 350,000 eligible Coloradans, Republicans, Democrats, and unaffiliateds to cast a ballot. Uh, And when things started to uh, shift in this nation, when we started to see this massive attack on voting rights and on elections, I've always stood up for Colorado voters. Uh, Whether that means intervening in Mesa County when rogue county clerk Tina Peters compromised her own voting equipment, uh, to making sure that voters in in Democratic-leaning counties have elections that they deserve as Colorado citizens, uh, I'll always protect our election infrastructure and the right to vote. 
where do you think we still have to go? Obviously, nothing's perfect. Yeah. What are maybe challenges or growth opportunities that Colorado still has when it comes to voting? Well, Colorado is the nation's gold standard for voting. Uh, we have the best access. We have the best election security. But there's always more that you can do. Um, in 2020, just to, to give you a data point, 86.5% of active voters cast a ballot in the middle of the pandemic. So our elections are going really well. Um, but with that said, you know, I, I look forward to continuing to increase access. Uh, we're already planning for next year's legislative session and are looking at things like expanding automatic voter registration uh, to more places where Coloradans interact with government. Uh, we want to continue to partner with the tribes to make sure that every Coloradan has full franchise in the state. Um, we've been very success, successful in, in partnering with the tribes, and there's more that we can do. Uh, we also need to continue to shine light on money and politics. Uh, so we plan in my office to upgrade uh, the reporting of campaign spending, the reporting of lobbying. Um, and to, to tell you a, a little bit of... Um, you know, the unfortunate part is that we haven't been immune to attacks on democracy here. Uh, we have uh, two county clerks who have breached their internal security to try to prove conspiracies just in the last year. Uh, we have a county in the state of Colorado where the county clerk works behind bulletproof glass because of the threats to election workers. Uh, on election day, we saw a voter in Pueblo try to hack into uh, a piece of voting equipment. We will continue to see these evolving threats, um, and I will continue to act decisively, whether it's uh, with these county clerks making sure that we decertify compromised voting equipment and, and appoint folks to, to oversee elections that need to, uh, to the threats against election workers. Just this year alone, I, I ran legislation and passed into law uh, the nation's first law on insider threats. It's now a felony to compromise voting equipment. We made it a crime to threaten an election worker for in retaliate against them for doing their job. We also prohibited the open carrying of guns from 100 feet of a voting center where you drop off your ballot or for where you process your ballot. So we'll continue to rise to the challenges and make sure our elections remain the best in the nation. You talk about the importance of having access to voting and making sure that Coloradans feel like they get to be part of that process. But, you know, we're also seeing in Colorado across the country folks who, OK, so maybe they get to make their vote. But then once that happens, they don't necessarily feel like politicians or people in government are then actually speaking to the issues that they care about or actually representing them yeah. how they see fit. You know, what are your, your thoughts on that and yeah. making not just the, the ability to participate in, in the process of voting, but then also make sure that that government actually looks like something that we want it to look like? No, I think that's a, a really good point um, because there's, there's two questions. Is there voter access? But question two is having candidates that uh, truly inspire uh, the, the people that will vote for them, but then deliver on their promises. And I'll tell you what, I ran for this office at the age of 33, never having ran for office before against the only Republican statewide incumbent left in the state of Colorado for a seat a Democrat had not won in 60 years. Uh, and we ended up winning. And I think in a large part is because I'm an every just like a normal person. Um, I have at this point $186,000 of education debt. Uh, I, I know what it means to be short on money. I know what it means to to feel like you can't fully pay your electrical bill. And when I ran for office, it, it was uh, to help as much as I can everyday people, but also to produce results. 
And the things that I said I would do, I have done. I also think that's really important. So we need to elect more people from diverse backgrounds. Um, we need to see have more people who are working people. We have to have more women. We have to have more people of color. Um, not only because uh, government should be reflective of the people, but you have different backgrounds. You know, I will always stand, for example, with women, families, and children in protecting the right to reproductive health care. That is a value I bring to this office. And I know a lot of men are pro-choice also, but having a women's perspective is important. And people from diverse backgrounds will have diverse perspectives, uh, and you would hope there would be better policy outcomes from that. We are a radio station, so we love music. <laughs> uh-huh. um, you are crisscrossing the state um, campaigning and yeah. talking about your uh, re-election as you were doing so, I imagine there's a lot of time in cars and planes yeah. or whatever that might be. So I'm going to ask, as you crisscross the state, yeah. is there any song or artist that is just like your earworm sticking with you everywhere you go? <laughs> well, I do love women rappers. I will tell you that. Uh, so I really, gosh, this is going to be like throwback, but I, I like Little Kim. I like Nicki Minaj, Missy Elliott. I also love salsa music. Um, so lots of salsa bands, a little bit of women rappers thrown in. I like oldies too. country. I could two-step like the best of them. Um, so yes, there's a lot of music and try to keep it really upbeat and, you know, like to get energy from it. Well, Jenna Griswold running for re-election for Colorado Secretary of State. Thank you so much for coming in and taking a couple minutes to chat with me. Thank you so much. Hey, yo, shorty, won't you go get a bag of the lethal? I'll be undressed in the bra or see-through. Why you count your juice thinking I'm a cheat you? The only one thing I want to do is freak you. Keep your stone set. I got my own baguettes. And I'll be doing things that you won't regret. Little Kim, the queen bee, so you best take heed. Shall I proceed? Will there be a ticket to ride in 2023? The answer to that question is still up in the air. On Tuesday, Telluride Town Council discussed the possibility of the ride festival coming back to Town Park next year with dates later in the summer. In recent years, the Rock and Roll Festival has occurred in July. Now ride promoter Todd Creel is requesting dates for September 29th through October 1st. The hours will also be shortened, with music going from 7 to 10 p.m. on Friday, 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. on Saturday, and 11 a.m. to 10.30 p.m. on Sunday. Telluride Parks and Recreation Director Stephanie Jacquet notes there are some challenges when it comes to the dates. The fall is still a very busy time for events. That would include Blues and Brews Festival, September 15th to the 17th. Autumn Classic, otherwise known as Cars and Colors, Mountains to Desert, Suicide Prevention Walk, Original Thinkers, and Horror Show. So there are no direct overlaps in 2023. However, the September event schedule fluctuates every year depending on where Labor Day falls. She adds potential issues when it comes to soccer playoffs in the park, law enforcement and emergency response capacity, wastewater, and the impacts to the park itself. Uh, as always, Weather conditions can always affect um, or can affect the playing fields. And this could be a snowy time of year. It could be a beautiful time of year. We don't really know from year to year. So the potential for damage to the fields so late in the growing season is definitely a, a concern of staff um, that we would not just affect the remainder of the fall season, but potentially the spring season with winter around the corner. 
The discussion on Tuesday was only a work session. The Telluride Parks and Recreation Commission is responsible for approving or denying the festival request. But town council has the ability to overturn Parks and Rec's decision and has done so in the past. As such, council hopes to provide direction when it comes to its opinion on the request. Council member Mian Fee has concerns about the number of private events occurring in town at that time. There are significant private events that are going on that particular weekend. I received 32 leads for that weekend for this year alone from people that wanted to get married on that weekend. So even if there were 20 of those weddings, you know, you're talking about anywhere between 4,000, you know, three and 4,000 people that are coming in for private events as well. And so to layer a festival on top of that, we just have to see if that's really a viable um, viable option for that particular weekend. Council member Geneva Shawnette worries about getting enough volunteers. Council member Dan Enright has concerns about the community capacity for extending events further into the fall. The feedback I hear from locals is that having another major event at the end of the season feels less like a benefit and more like a burden. But council member Jesse Ray Arguez notes the proposal isn't for a large full day festival. The proposal that Todd is giving us, it's not a, an all day long festival. It's maybe a couple shows, maybe just one show. When you're talking about EMS and police and other resources, that drastically minimizes the need for an event that's much larger and all day long because of the time requirement because they don't need to be in the festival all day long. For Creel, he says he's not tied to the dates in September. He just wants to share live music with the community. He acknowledges the challenges, but says they can be worked through. If you don't want it, there's 100 roadblocks you can throw up. And if you do want it, there's ways to work together to make it happen. When it comes to the community, it also seems mixed. Public comment was minimal, with some, including Dave Valentine, speaking in support of the ride. It's sort of like a big hurrah to make some money before we get into a real off-season. Steve Gumbel, president of SBG Productions, says he supports the festival, but doesn't agree with the dates. I think it boils down really to one word, and that's resources or the lack of in this instance. In the end, council members were split on their opinions and unable to provide guidance to the Parks and Recreation Commission. The commission plans to discuss the ride festival application with additional information at its October 19th meeting. The project to replace the old Chair 9 with a high-speed lift is racing towards its final stages. That's the big update Telski co-owner Chad Horning shared with town council this week. Although the lift will not be ready for the ski area's projected opening in late November, Horning says it should be whisking skiers up the slopes shortly thereafter. So starting with chair nine, which is always the first thing people want to ask about. Yes, we are on schedule. We, uh, since day one, we've scheduled a load test on December 16th, and that's when the load test is still scheduled to occur. After that load test, it usually takes about a week to get things operational. So we should be people snow willing. People should be on that chair within a week of December 16th, uh, for sure by the holiday. Horning says the project is literally taking flight. In the next few weeks, helicopters will begin to place the chairlift towers. Within about three weeks, you should see towers flying around with helicopters. All the concrete's now poured. We're now doing the final excavations at the top of the of left nine and the bottom. And so it's an enormous project. There's a lot going on up there. 
Other summer projects wrapping up on the mountain include snowmaking upgrades and glade maintenance. Three more miles of mountain bike trails have recently opened as well. Addressing challenges which Telski is facing, Horning says they come as no surprise. I don't want to be a broken record on this for the whole community, but the first three challenges were housing. So it's housing, housing, housing. And, um, you know, I was thinking about our own internal needs and the own internal studies that we're doing. And we think the current housing need in Mountain Village is around 400 units today. And that's based on kind of a loose study, but it's a, a real-time study of, of employers. About 250 of those units are, um, maybe a little bit more of that, are driven from the ski company, and the rest are driven from other businesses. Horning reports that Telski is open to all sorts of partnerships in the region in order to expand housing stock. And we're, we're trying to work with the town of Mountain Village. We're starting to work with the town of Telluride. We're working with the county on some things. We're working with the Forest Service. We're working with communities outside. And uh, the, the, the only thing that's actually happening, though, is next week we're breaking ground at Ilium finally. The project in Ilium will provide Telski with some added workforce housing. It's been in the works for nearly five years. The first units should be ready for move-in by this January. Despite Telski's excitement about the coming housing, Horning says the area continues to see acute need. Refusing to be dispirited, Horning says mountain communities in Europe have conquered similar challenges, and Telluride can do the same. Because the reality is, we can solve 100% of our housing needs within walking distance of all of our communities. We can just solve them. We can. We have the land. We have we have the resources to do it. And if we're committed to the mental health of our employees and the environment of not transporting them and the um, ability for them to actually be a part of our community, we have to consider that. Keeping employees housed in and fully integrated into the community is essential to the spirit of Telluride, Horning says. This place has gone from a unique place to a very special place to special and amazing, and it's, it needs to stay there. It, 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 can't, it can't go downhill from here. And I, I think if we become a Vale or any other place where we're shipping employees in or they're having to travel in, that's going to be the beginning of the end for the, how unique and special this place is. Telski is currently working on an in-depth study of its current and future housing options. Council members say they'll be excited to partner with Telski on future projects. Other than this handful of updates, Horning says this ski area is excitedly awaiting snow. Flu season is nearly upon us, and San Miguel County Public Health will be holding vaccine clinics in the months ahead. The clinics begin on September 22nd and will take place weekly until the end of October. By Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommendations, everyone six months and older should get the vaccine. The clinics will take place at the San Miguel Public Health offices on Main Street in Telluride and in the Sheriff's Annex in Norwood. Appointments can be booked online, although the clinic will also accept walk-ins. It's safe to partner the flu shot with the COVID vaccine. Public Health Director Grace Franklin says both diseases are predicted to surge in the winter months. So it's important to get protected and stay home if you're feeling sick. Registration for flu and COVID vaccinations are available at sanmiguelcountyco.gov. September 15th marks the beginning of Hispanic Heritage Month. 
This date coincides with Independence Day anniversaries for multiple countries across Latin America. Here in Telluride, the month will be kicked off at the library with a showing of the movie Coco at 4 p.m. and free tacos from Latin Creations Taco Cart. Festivities continue into the evening with a game of Loteria. All ages are welcome. Hispanic Heritage Month has been celebrated in the U.S. since the 1960s and runs 30 days through October 15th. The library is offering programming all throughout the month. Investors are buying an increasing portion of Colorado homes. That's according to new data released by Stateline, an initiative of the Pew Charitable Trusts. The findings show almost a quarter of homes sold in Colorado last year were purchased by investors as opposed to private homeowners. That's up from about 15 percent the previous year and the first major change since 2012. As a result, rents are going up for many suburban families. Investor home purchases jumped during the COVID-19 pandemic and during the Great Recession more than a decade ago. A 25-year-old river guide from Colorado is racking up hundreds of thousands of views on TikTok explaining the mega drought in the Colorado River Basin. The reasons for it and potential solutions can be hard to wrap one's head around, but Western Water Girl makes it snarky and fun. KUNC's Luke Runyon reports. Tia Leto honed her short, snappy explanations of the West water problems guiding rafting trips down the Animus River in her hometown of Durango. She'd have just a couple minutes in between shouting paddle commands to the tourists in her boat, and after running the same stretch of river a few times a day for months... You get to the point where you're like, okay, I know I'm going to need to call a command in exactly 45 seconds. Like, what story can I tell in the meantime? And I'll tell you, the better stories you tell, the better tips you get. That same formula works on TikTok. Just trade the tips for likes. On the app, Leto goes by Western Water Girl. And her clips regularly garner hundreds of thousands of views. Colorado River Basin states had exactly 31 days to come up with a plan to reduce their water consumption by 25%. In her videos, Leto, with her straight brown hair and cat eye makeup, sits in front of the camera news anchor style. Photos of the Southwest's shrinking reservoirs pop up behind her. And hopefully, if enough of us are talking about it, then water managers and elected officials in the Southwest might feel pressured to actually change the system. The Colorado River has been her focus since she started on the app earlier this spring. Tens of millions of people depend on the river, and it's facing a serious shortfall in supply. Leto says the concepts can be hard to grasp at first, which is why she avoids all the jargon that comes with the heavily engineered systems used to plumb the arid west. Like, I get comments that are like, wow, you just connected a lot of dots for me. Like, I, I understood pieces of this, but you're the first person who explained it in terms that I can understand. Leto grew up rafting the streams of southwestern Colorado and says one event in particular was formative. She was working at a local outfitter one morning in 2015 when the sheriff's office called. They said, 
I don't know what you're planning on doing today, but you're not going to be able to go rafting. A plume of neon orange wastewater released from the Gold King Mine into the Animus River was making its way toward Durango. In Colorado, a crew working for the Environmental Protection Agency accidentally released a million gallons of toxic sludge into a river. As the news spread, Leto, 17 years old at the time, found herself fielding calls from journalists all over the world. I had no idea like the scale of the issue, nor what to say to those people. <laughs> Since going viral, Leto's TikToks have earned praise from others in the world of water. Bronson Mack is in communications for the Southern Nevada Water Authority. He came across Leto just by scrolling and says a partnership to help spread the agency's conservation message could be in the cards. And more than anything, the impact that we saw with that is how direct and accurate the information was. Leto says she sees a way to make this a career path. More water agencies and environmental groups are reaching out with offers to collaborate, turning her hobby into a money-making opportunity. And she says the timing is right because she's already found an audience. It's like, yes, it is complicated, but the public deserves to understand it too. And that's why it's really important to break it down into like small bite-sized pieces. Especially, she says, because the region is reaching a moment of reckoning on water management. And finding a good solution will require everyone to know how it works. I'm Luke Runyon in Durango, Colorado. The White Mesa community recently hosted its annual bear dance. White Mesa is a Ute Mountain Ute community near Blanding, Utah. Bear dances take place in Ute communities across the region starting in late spring. The celebration at White Mesa marked the final dance of the season. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Clark Adamatis from KSUT and KSJD was there to report. Here in White Mesa, about 30 people are partner dancing inside an open-air corral made of juniper branches. Women are wearing colorful dresses and shawls. In a shaded area, several tribal singers are gathered to sing traditional bear dance songs. About 100 spectators are also in the shade along the perimeter cooling off. It's 97 degrees on the dance floor. A lot of people said, oh, it's hot over there. It's really hot. Yeah, it is hot, you know, and a lot of times life, life's not fair. You just got to suck it up and take what's given to you and do the best with it. Jack Cansey Jr. is a bear dance chief in White Mesa and a Ute Mountain Ute tribal member. For the past three years, bear dance chiefs like Jack had to protect people from the COVID-19 pandemic. Dancing was limited and there was no close contact between participants. The two years uh, that the pandemic had hit our place here, um, we just had, uh, we didn't have the corella, we just had uh, the guys singing. Now we're two years after the pandemic and after they lifted the, um, the restrictions and stuff, when we said, we're going to have this bear dance. We need it done. We need the bear dance done, not only for, for the community, but for everybody else that survived this pandemic. The pandemic affected Ute people across the region and also Jack personally. You know, the first year that of the pandemic um, was the year that my, um, my daughter passed away. I had to sit out the whole year and let it go by. The tribal members held a memorial for Jack's daughter on the final day of the bear dance.
The bear dance marks the endurance of the Ute culture. Ute people have been doing this for generations. To Jack, the tribal members embody the spirit of the bear's resilience. We're surviving with this bear dance. No matter if it was just two people, you know, I'd still be out here. You know, that's, that's how much this uh, bear dance means to me. To get it back, you know, get it back and uh, let the people enjoy it and satisfy the, the spirit of the bear. How he's overcome several obstacles in its life, you know, and, and we're the same way and we have to survive. There's no other way. The bear dance season will return next spring. Ute people can gather safely again with no restrictions on singing or partner dancing. For KSUT and KSJD, I'm Clark Adamitis. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a 40% chance of rain and thunderstorms tonight with a low around 45. Mostly sunny skies should return on Thursday with a high near 60 degrees. Thursday night calls for mostly clear skies with a low in the mid-40s. Friday should be sunny with a high around 60 and a slight chance of showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon. Friday night should be mostly clear with a low in the mid-40s. This has been the news for Wednesday, September 14th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Hello, CODA listeners. Bright Futures and Wilkinson Public Library are teaming up to bring you a free bi-weekly parent support group. Join us every other Tuesday in the library's magazine room to vent, make new parent friends, or just get out of the house. This new parent support group is intended for parents with children aged 0 to 8, and kids are welcome to attend. Our first meeting is Tuesday, September 27th from 1130 to 1230. Please email Madeline at brightfuturesforchildren.org with any questions. See you at the library. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Koto. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.